Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Good evening, and welcome to Haunted Nights Live, where your hosts, authors Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at TamaraThorne.com and AlistairCross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live page a like on Facebook or visit our mutual blog at thorningcross.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at thorncross. Underwriting for Haunted Nights Live is provided by PML Media and Author Marketing Hub on the web respectively at pmlmedia.com and authormarketinghub.com. Special thanks to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. So, Alistair, we've got a couple of really exciting things going on tonight. But before we get started, we want to wish everybody a happy holiday season in our own special way with a top 13 list. This week we compiled some interesting little-known facts about Christmas that we thought you might like to hear. Yes, and please keep in mind that as fiction writers, embellishing is part of our job description. So before you start sending off your hate mail, we encourage you to receive this week's top 13 list in a spirit of eye-rolling, tongue-clucking, head-shaking <coughs> cheer. That being said, here is number 13 of interesting things that we learned about Christmas. Not all Santas are nice and friendly. Take, for instance, the Finnish Yule Goat. This was a really crazy magical troll who rode the big stinky Yule goat called Joe Lou Pucky from door to door. If you didn't give him something, he had the goat urinate on your doorstep, which brought you bad luck and a stinky doorstep for the entire year. People shunned you then and called you P-Lou Yucky, Pucky, P-Lou Pucky, which meant goat piss boy. But number 12 worse. In Iceland, they had a family of ogres playing Santa, 13 of them. They were called Yolas Wiener, which means Yule Lads. This multi-Santa, like the Yule Goat, went around demanding gifts and pillaging farmers' daughters. If you didn't give them good enough gifts, they ate your children, although the farmers' daughters didn't really object. Nice. Uh, And then there's the Krampus. This horny devil joined up with St. Nick back in the 1600s. While the jolly elf gives presents to the good children, the Krampus takes care of the bad ones. Depending on the level of naughtiness, a child might be spanked with a birch rod, sent to bed without his britches, stood on his head in a corner, or put in a sack or washtub to be carried away for drowning or dinner, most likely both. Now, carol trivia for number 10. Deck the halls. The English words to this carol only date back to 1877, but the melody is from the 16th century, originally a winter carol from Wales. Its title, Nuss Galen loosely translates from the Welsh to Red Winter Nose. Nice. (laughs) Number nine, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. Originally, the miniature village in the movie Beetlejuice was Christmas-themed, and Michael Keaton's character sang Oh Little Town of Beetlejuice. 
Unfortunately, somebody decided to reshoot because the words involved cannibalism and the blandishments of the stinky Yule goat. Okay, well, number eight, uh, St. Nicholas, the real Santa Claus. He was an obsessively pious, short Greek with a crooked nose, and he's the basis for today's Santa Claus. He beat up people who weren't religious enough, but he loved kids, so we're not sure if he ate them or not. His best, he was best known for helping three poor but lovely sisters by throwing couches of gold coins into their windows, and he ate them. In some versions of the story, the stinky Yule Goat joined in. This is also the origin of the pawn shop symbol of three gold balls, for St. Nick later told many girls in need to, quote, meet me under the balls. In his time, these balls were not gold, but blue. I'm sure they were. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven. In another story about St. Nicholas, the not-so-jolly Greek encountered an innkeeper who bragged that he'd caught and butchered three kids and pickled them so that during the coming famine months, he could serve them up as ham. The story goes that after St. Nick prayed for help from above, he managed to sew the briny dismembered bodies back together and return them to life. Unfortunately, they didn't last long due to the stinky old goat's penchant for pickled people. Ah, number six. St. Nicholas also lent his name to the jolly jelly belly we know and love today. The the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas is Sinterklaas, and that's how he was known until some English sailor with a mouthful of saltwater taffy mispronounced it while talking to Charles Dickens. He's been called Santa Claus ever since, and we're like, oh, <laughs> thanks, Chuck. At last, this mangling has paid off on the Internet, though, because it's bursting now with adorable Santa hat kit-wearing kittens displaying their claws. <laughs> and speaking of Chuck Dickens, did you know he coined the phrase Merry Christmas in his story, A Christmas Carol? Before the publication of that ever-famous tale, people on the streets might say to you, Happy Baby Jesus Day. And they would say it with terror in their eyes and a tremor in their voice, because back then, if you failed to acknowledge Happy Baby Jesus Day, you were stoned in the center of town, then left overnight to endure the many indignities of the stinky Yule goat. <laughs> and number four, it began uh, caroling. Caroling began in medieval England, when musicians traveled to rich people's castles and sang. Uh, if they were good, they were rewarded with some figgy pudding, miniature marble bucks, Yule goat, and gently used underwear. It's kind of like today. Um, but if they were off-key, the 13 Yolas Venier Ogres, Wiener, not Venier, Wiener, it's very important, Yogers got to, you guessed it, sexually harass them for 12 days. And by the way, this is the origin of the song, The 12 Days of Christmas. The original version was called The 13 Days of Christmas, and the final verse was, On the 13th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 13 Ogres thrusting. I can't see <laughs> That's why the Lord's relieving of the milkmaids were originally tittering, not milking. Nice. In Finland, where Santa was celebrated stinky goat style, families spent Christmas Eve together in their favorite place, the sauna, where they sat naked and sung solemn carols until they passed out from the heat. Tradition dictates that you must pass out or the Yule goat wouldn't come. In truth, however, the Yule goat always came. He never was the type to pass up a feast of steamed children. And number two, in Greece, many people believe a horde of goblins called Kalikapziri. They appear to cause mischief for the thirteen, uh, the 12 days of Christmas, not 13, if 13 is off. And the, the 12 days start on December 25th. Their favorite pranks, including filling shoes with olive oil, urinating in the baklava, 
and dismembering shepherds and feeding them to the stinky yule goat. Damn that stinky yule goat. All right, number one, this is my favorite. In Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, the holiday season is kicked off with the celebration of St. Lucia on December 13th. On this day, the eldest daughter in every family gets up early, dons a long white gown with a red ribbon, then sets a crown of twigs upon her head. There are nine candles in the crown, and she lights them all and then wakes her family one by one while trying not to drip hot wax on any of them. Each drip means she has to add another candle. She continues wearing her crown while the family eats breakfast by the light of her head. She wears the fiery crown for the rest of the day, replacing candles as necessary, but it's important she light a new one before an old one gutters out to avoid cursing the family with bad luck in the new year. In the evening, everyone in each village carries old-fashioned torches to light many small bonfires. They sing as they all throw their torches and oldest daughters onto the central bonfire, a humongous pile of hay. Then they have a parade and dine on roast goat in honor of, well, you know. You know what's scary is how much of the stuff people wouldn't guess was true there. Yeah, Some of the well, all of this, true. I, yeah, all of this is based in fact, though. <laughs> it is, completely. We just put our own spin on it. <laughs> Uh, and that's really all you can expect of a fiction writer is that there's truth in there somewhere. And that's like right. It is a lot more interesting, I think. Now, before we get started with Bill Gagliani, uh, we have some really great news from one of our former guests and future guests, Michael Aronovitz, who's here joining us in the studio before we introduce my, uh, Bill. So, Mike, welcome back and tell us your good news. Oh, well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I actually have three announcements. Uh, everything comes at once, right? Um, <laughs> there's there's a long interview of me in the latest Weird Fiction Review that came out today, and that's Centipede Press. Um, I'm also proud to announce that my second novel, The Witch of the Wood, went live today, and I'm asking anybody who was thinking about giving me a try, this is my most weird and strange one, jumping off the page. It's got beautiful witchy women, hot sex, and enough apocalyptic <laughs> scatter to really fry your freaking eyeballs. Also, Derek <laughs> over there at Hippocampus, he really does a superb job putting out a beautiful product um, you can see uh, The Witch of the Wood advertised there on his front page at www.hippocampus.com, and that's with two Ps. And my final announcement to the frickin' world, baby, my third novel, <laughs> Phantom Effect, will be coming out through a real heavy hitter in the horror industry, and it's a big moment for me. Very nice. So great. Make sure and give us all your links so we can put them up. Yes, yeah, um, actually, my Phantom Effect is coming out through Nightshade Books, uh, and they're an imprint now run by Skyhorse Publishing and Start Publishing, alongside uh, one of the original company's um, principal editors, Jeremy Lassen. Uh, it's it's going to be released in the fall season of 2015, and it's possible it could come out in all three formats: hardcover, paperback, and electronic. Very nice. Can you tell us very can you tell us really quick what it's about? Absolutely. Jonathan Martin Delaware Deseranto is a six foot five inch tall serial killer with a problem. He's stuck out on I four seventy six in a heavy November rainstorm with two flat tires and the dead bodies of a cop and a co ed named Marissa Madison in his trunk. 
Desperate to get off the highway, he drives his car on its back rims towards exit six. The car stalls on the ramp, and Desiranto uses the last of its momentum to plunge over the crest of a steep slope and crash into a length of concrete pipe below. The car comes to rest on the edge of a construction site where machines are positioned to tear down an old Motel 6. But for Desiranto, the worst is yet to come. Marissa Madison had been a psychic of sorts while alive, using her ability to assist people in their personal journeys. Now the ghost of Marissa will utilize her strange gift, trapping Desiranto in the abandoned hotel and forcing him to live the last fatal week of her own life as a passive passenger. So soon, Desiranto will experience something truly horrific, the mind-numbing terror of being stalked by himself. Ooh, very nice. That sounds complicated and <laughs> great. <laughs> uh, it is. We, we read it, actually. We loved it, especially the yeah. tree specs. But how long yeah, did it take uh, to write? Um, This one took two years, and I'm going to tell you, just as a last thing, because I don't want to hold up uh, the show, but the reason why this book is special for me is that it has everything. Uh, Not only do we have a frightening serial killer, but a beautiful, frightening victim. Uh, With this one, I built character and scenario with a certain vivid intricacy, and I got to the heart and soul of some human conditions that give us blistering context. The moment for moment is a thrill ride, and it has a symbolic level lurking under the tracks, you know, for people who love that deep, dark stuff. I, I also do some acrobatics with voice and timeline that give the whole thing a dimension of wow. Uh, just as the last thing, guys, this one will get you and get you and get you. I'm going to sign <laughs> off now, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. It's always a pleasure. Good luck, man. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in April. Thanks. Yep, we'll Bye-bye. see you in April. <laughs> Bye. Yep. All right. Tonight's guest is W.D. Gagliotti, whom I know is Bill. I've known him since the early 80s when we actually <sighs> critiqued by snail mail. Uh, he, he's the only person I ever critiqued with, and um, we write very different things, but they're both horror, and it, he, he's great. He's been my friend for a million years, well, since the eighties. So tonight, welcome Bill Gagliotti. Before I say hi, I should tell you he's the author of, uh, he's a Bram Stoker Award finalist and author of not the novels Wolf Trap, Wolf Gambit, Wolf Bluff, Wolf Edge, Wolf Cut, and Savage Nights. He's published fiction and nonfiction in publications like Robert Block's Psychos, Undead Tales, and The Midnighters Club. And I love his books. And here he is, Bill Gagliotti. Hey, Bill. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Oh, Thank you so much, <laughs> Alistair. <laughs> How Thank are you? you. And I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? Good. We're good. Oh, it's been a crazy day, good. but yeah. we're good. Good. Yeah. I have I have I have to say I think I need to hire Michael to uh write my back cover copy. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, that was yeah. great. I was sitting there thinking the same thing. I'm all we need to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's great to be here, guys. Really. Uh, well, one thing um, I want to say to to the listeners before before we get started with the questions, um, one thing that I would like to say is that Bill here is going to be giving away two Kindle editions or signed paperbacks from the Nick Lupo series tonight. Um, when we give you the key phrase, just write it on our Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live Facebook page 
or you can email us at hauntednightslive at gmail.com. The first two people to do this will receive a Nick Lupo book of their choice. But I'm not going to give you the key phrase yet, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) Email us at the time. Yes. yes. So again, um, again, when we do give you the key phrase, you can post it on our Facebook wall or send it to hauntednightslive at gmail.com. Yeah. So, All right. So, out, okay. so Bill. We just write down who's talking. <laughs> We're so organized exactly. tonight. Exactly. Um, tell us about Nick Lupo, your your main yes. character in your series. Where did he come from? What are his struggles? All that good stuff. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, well, you know, Nick Lupo. Uh, he's partly me in some ways. You know, I I gave him kind of my childhood to some extent. Uh, it's not totally autobiographical, but, uh, you know, I really uh, associate uh, him with me, and uh, when I was growing up, the movies that I I enjoyed, the the horror movies, I almost always gravitated toward the werewolf, uh, you know, Larry Talbot, and so forth in Universal movies, especially, strangely enough, Abbott and Costello meets, you know, Frankenstein, which is, you know, uh, a classic. And uh, I always just um, could really relate to, you know, his struggle. I thought he was a tragic figure. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, starting to write uh, this first novel in the early 90s, uh, vampires were all the rage. And I just thought I would fight against that with a werewolf and I thought well what's even better is make the werewolf the good guy and um, so that's you know that's kind of where where he came from Um, you know there are a lot of things a lot of influences that I've had over the years and certainly uh, the wolf sour by uh, you know Robert McCammon was one and uh, you know on television things like uh, forever night kind of gave me that 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 general uh, uh, kind of background of, you know, I like the idea of him being a cop and, yeah. uh, you know, he's not trying to atone for sins necessarily, but he's not a happy camper, but, uh, uh, you know, he, he hates what he is, but I also wanted him to, uh, slowly come to realize that, you know, his dark side, uh, is more powerful and, uh, you know, more, uh, can take over his life more in, in ways that he's not even sure of. So when I started my novel, I wanted him to, you know, after, you know, 30 years of having been a werewolf, he's just now getting a handle on it. And uh, so that's that's the gist of his character. And uh, I've enjoyed making him um, go through some tough times and making him a little bit more of a badass, you know, and giving him... Uh, I, I, keep, I keep saying that, you know, Nick Lupo, he's a good guy, but he's getting over it. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's very good. I, I, I have a really weird question. Um, yeah? Um, not in the list of questions because it's that weird. When he's human, how hairy is he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, you know, I always thought of him a little bit as me. And uh, my, I have facial hair, and I, ha- I tend to wear my hair long, my, my, the hair on my head long. But generally, I'm not that terribly hairy. So he's only hairy, <laughs> <laughs> he's only hairy on the full moon. <laughs> oh, okay. No back hair, huh? <laughs> no, not that much. No. Not like some people I know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, watch it. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
right, you said you started you said you started this series in in the nineties. Um how how so how many are there in this series? Um well I'm uh just published the fifth and I'm working on the sixth right now. Um so yeah, I started writing it in about ni- about ninety three if I remember correctly. And, you know, I was doing other things and I was writing short stories and a full time job and so forth. So it really didn't it didn't get published in the small press until uh, uh about ten years later, two thousand three. And uh so, you know, it took about ten years. But it's I've I've taken less time to write all the following books. And of course it was intended to be a one off. Uh, so, in fact, I even toyed with the idea of killing Nick Lupo at the end of that first book. And uh, my first editor said, "No, don't do that." And I'm, you know, <laughs> technically that was a that was a really good uh, suggestion because I wouldn't have a series otherwise. <laughs> so, really like too when when you're not writing Lupo, you have sort of like Caleb Carr. You have such a neat Victorian sort of almost steampunky feel to some of your work. I just love that. I love this too. I love that. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I, I, I got with the steampunk very early. I read uh, Tim Powers uh, in the early '80s. In fact, I, I think I read the Anubis Gates probably right when it came out in '84. I think it was, and uh, I immediately uh, found that that was the kind of fantasy that I was interested in, or you know, if you want to call it science fiction. And uh, so I really I kept following Tim Powers and uh, James Blaylock uh, through oh, God, I you know him. yeah I mean I, I kept following them through the 80s and 90s and you know it's like all these years later steampunk is a thing now you know it's a it's a style and a, a you know a dress and uh, you know costume and all this stuff but I mean I I was reading it you know right at the time that the term was coined uh, so you know as a response to cyberpunk. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I, I think I think I've always sort of gravitated toward writing that kind of that fake 18th century um, kind of style. That's what you were doing when we critiqued all the time. Yeah, you guys, was, back, you guys, you guys, you were talking before we started the show, and you said uh, you guys go back to like what 1984. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Maybe even longer because I knew you before we bought our house. <laughs> it could, yeah, it could well, be, you know, it could be a year or two earlier than that. Sure. I don't know. I just, I, 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 I just, I just want to point out that at that time I was seven years old, and um, <laughs> and if you're just joining us, we're talking with acclaimed horror novelist W.D. Gagliani of the Lupo Werewolf series. Check him out at his website wdgagliani.com. <laughs> For you, we we just started. Well, it's not a series. We, we're doing a serial novel, but it's the closest thing to a series we've ever done, either of us. So I want to know what's your favorite thing about writing a series. Uh, my favorite thing about writing a series, probably, I I think I've enjoyed having like an arc um, that I've been able to follow. Um, I, I didn't realize that I would enjoy that, but as I've gone through and I had to be inventive and create uh, plots that I hadn't really planned for, I found that I've enjoyed. Uh, I, 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 sometimes I call it throwing out seeds. You know, I throw out some stuff and I don't know what it'll be until later, 
And then later yeah. I find that I can go back and it's like, whoa, that seed really, you know, turned into something and now I can use it. And uh, I don't know, I don't want to call it a talent, but it kind of surprised me that I've been able to do that. And uh, so I've been able to have sort of, um, I mean, the first book kind of stands on its own a little bit, but then the second, third, and fourth books are kind of a loose trilogy that have an arc. And now, the, you know, the uh, the fifth, sixth, and seventh book books will also have an arc. And um, uh, I'm kind of, I've, I've really been enjoying doing that, connecting them. So I think that's that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing that I that I found I've enjoyed most. What about the worst? (laughs) What's the Uh, the worst? The biggest challenge I tell you is um, uh, how much reiterating I should do. You know, I I sometimes I know my editor uh, Don. I love him very much, but sometimes he says, you know, you're you're telling too much of the previous stuff, and then there are times when apparently I've gone the opposite and didn't tell enough. So I'm still getting a handle on that. And I think sometimes as I'm writing, I think um, it seems to me when I'm writing it that I'm spending too much time explaining the past. Um, But I keep thinking while I'm writing it, I keep thinking that uh, really a a new reader would like to know what's going through the characters' minds and, you know, what their past is. So I find that it's a very tough line to, to walk. And I'm I'm either you know going too far one way or too far the other way, and that is my biggest challenge, I think. Yeah. Um, so your werewolves, what sets them apart from the others? What sets uh, uh, Nick Lupo or the books in general? You mean? Either one or both. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Um, what's I think what sets them apart from my point of view is that I. Even though I called them horror, um, I really come from a, a, I mean, I loved science fiction first and mystery and thrillers and horror. And I, I, I think I, you know, concentrated and focused on horror for many years, but part of me really always really enjoyed uh, the thriller. So I think what sets some of my books apart is that um, I've tried to, sort of blend uh, uh, thriller and horror together so that it turns into something I think is maybe a little different. Um, you know, so, uh, sometimes I want to call them urban fantasy, but I don't think they fit the category exactly, although some of the urban fantasy that I've read, you know, kind of is reminiscent of what I do. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's I'm not like the only person that's doing it or anything like that, but I think I don't... Um, I don't do the full-on horror thing, I think, in these books that much. You know, I, I try to keep it um, uh, quick-moving and have a you know real uh, thriller sensibility to it and uh, uh, try to keep the action flowing and, and the, the cop stuff going on so that, uh, you know, hopefully there's some suspense as to, as to all the action. And no matter what I do, I, I can't seem to write a story that takes place over a long period of time. I find that all my books end up being, you know, like with, within the span of a couple of days at most. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, I think that maybe that keeps my interest and that, therefore I hope it keeps the readers more interested as well. Oh, sure. Well, and as promised, uh, Bill here is going to be giving away two Kindle editions or signed paperbacks from 
the Nick Lupo series tonight. Um, I'm going to give you a key phrase, and all you need to do is go to our Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live Facebook page, or and 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 write the key phrase posted on the wall, or if or you can email us directly at uh, hauntednightslive at gmail.com. The uh, key phrase is I got bit by Nick. And of course, the Nick is Nick Lupo. And the key phrase, again, I got bit by Nick. Either post that on our uh, Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live page or email us directly at hauntednightslive at gmail.com. And the first two people to write that phrase or email us that phrase will win a Kindle or signed paperback copy of the Nick Lupo book of their choice. And we'll be... Uh, checking on that and so we will let you know when we um get our winner um and uh bill uh one thing that i wanted to ask you about that i think uh is interesting uh one thing i'm fascinated by i mean as as, as a writer myself but also just with with other writers is is the research that, that goes into something like this and i've never even thought about what kind of research you might have to do for werewolves i've you know done vampires before and stuff like that and it's so you know the history is so rich and there's so much to sift through um is is that do you feel that way about uh where like what kind of research do you do for for werewolves oh that's a good question i think i you know i haven't done that much further research on werewolves i think you know i did when i when i was writing the first book and then the second book um i i definitely went through and looked at uh historical accounts of uh uh you know medieval uh you know not witch hunts in this case but werewolf hunts where you know people were burned at the stake hundreds of people probably throughout Europe were burned at the stake as werewolves i mean we always hear of the witches being burned at the stake but they 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 didn't like werewolves that much either and uh you know and there's you know various there are various theories as to why people might have been mistaken for for werewolves you know some of it has to do uh with uh, you know certain diseases and uh, uh mental illness or possibly simple greed and revenge uh you know where you where all you had to do was accuse somebody of being a werewolf and they they could, sort of couldn't prove they weren't so next thing you know <laughs> they, you know you could swoop in and grab all their belongings because they were being burned at the stake or something, you know? So, I mean, there, I did a fair amount of that, um, you know, and then, you know, uh, someone, I remember one of the reviewers of my first novel uh, sort of castigated me for using silver and said, well, that just came from Hollywood and, you know, the, the, <laughs> the version to silver. And I, and I, yeah. you know, my response is, yeah, so it did come from Hollywood, but you know, maybe the guy who wrote that script knew that silver would affect werewolves, <laughs> you know, and he put it in his script. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have to, oh, I don't have great. to buy that he invented it, you know, Maybe he was right. simply recording. <laughs> so I decided oh, to use that because, you know, I, I like the idea that, um, you know, if you think of, of your of your guy, your protagonist, as kind of a superhero, so if he's Superman, then he had to have some kryptonite, um, you know. And I, I yeah. so I thought I thought there was no reason why I couldn't stick with with that particular aspect of the legend. Um, 
so I, you know, I, like I said, I did that in the early days. And then after that, I sort of had to develop a few of my own rules. Um, you know, for instance, uh, when I decided that I would bring in other werewolves, I, you know, I abandoned, uh, the, some of what had already been written, I think. And for instance, I, even though you would think they would be able to smell each other, I thought that, uh, really that wouldn't help me very much because, you know, I, <laughs> part of, part of my series is, you know, it's a mystery as to who is a werewolf and who isn't sometimes. So I thought right. that, when, you know, when they're human, they can't actually sense each other or they, or, or I should say that they can maybe suspect, but they can't really tell for sure. So right. I kind of went off on my own. And then just one last answer to your question. Uh, after, for my own werewolves, and hopefully sticking to that reasonably well, uh, most of my other research has really been uh, historical because I've brought in uh, various uh, historical aspects into my uh, novels that um, oftentimes instead of instead of researching, you know, what does the werewolf eat? I'm actually looking up uh, what kind of uniform did the SS use in World War II, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I, you know, sort of changed my, my research uh, to go along with, with the books. I also had done a fair amount of research in the early days on serial killers because um, I really wanted Wolf's Trap to be like the new uh, Silence of the Lambs. And it didn't right, really right. work out, you know, it didn't really work <laughs> out, but, you know, but that was my intention. So I, I did a fair amount of, of reading um, about uh, serial killer cases and, and you know, how uh, uh, the, the detection of, of those cases came about. What about uh, cops? Nick Lupo is a cop. Do you, do you talk to cops when you uh, research that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I didn't really talk to cops um, uh, ahead of time. I really just pretty much uh, winged it, you might say. And then um, I've, I've, made, I've made friends with someone who is a former cop, and he's, he sometimes laughs at me because he says, well, you know, that's not exactly how they would do it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I know. <laughs> you know I, so I, I, sort of, I sort of wink at that whole uh, concept. I mean, I, I want the... I, I think part of part of the appeal of Nick Lupo to me is that he's just as willing to be off the books as he is on the books. So I decided kind of early on that, you know, I mean, I would get the, the, the basic procedure correct, but then he goes off on his own and he's just a, a bull in a china shop, or I guess a wolf in a china shop. And, uh, you know, he does his own thing, uh, kind of a dirty, hairy type guy in a way. And uh, so I don't worry too much about that. And I, I hope that the action kind of keeps you from, from, you know, being too upset about that. It's like, you know, I, you know, I want to be, a, I want to have my guys be able to, to have a gunfight uh, like Starsky and Hutch without having to worry about the fact that, you know, they'd probably be stuck in paperwork for the rest of their lives afterwards, right. you know, in yeah, reality. That's... Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, I'd like to actually uh, ask you, uh, kind of break away a little bit and ask you a, a stylistic question. Do you prefer to write in first or third person? Oh, that's a that's a really great question because I actually prefer first person, but it seems that the marketplace prefers third. 
Um, so I, even though I've always wanted to write, um, you know, like a PI novel, a typical noir PI novel, you know, yeah. with first person narration, I've never gone through and actually finished one. I've got several starts, several aborted beginnings, but, um, I, I've kind of, uh, I guess I've decided somewhere along the line that I, I wanted to be able to jump from character to character. And so I have this sort of uh, uh, limited uh, third person, uh, you know, from each character's point of view, uh, jumping through each book. And yeah. uh, it, it's not all Lupo. I, I decided that I didn't want to be in his head the whole time. And yeah. uh, I liked, I liked, I I also found this is kind of disturbing, but I found that I really enjoyed writing the bad guy's point of view. You know, it's disturbing because you're not supposed to admit that. But I mean, you know, you know, actors always love to play the bad guy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the most right. fun, right? I don't and like you know, good guys. <laughs> no, the good, the good. That's why I'm turning my good guy. I mean, Nick Lupo is he's not exactly becoming a bad guy, but he's becoming badder. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. He's, he's not he's not a goody goody by any means, and and I've I've tried to since I like parallel stories, I always have a, a parallel story going on that's in the past. And one of the things that I did through the first three books is slowly show him in the past, um, learning that he could use you know his abilities uh, in in ways sometimes these ways you know these. Uh, his attempts to do something uh, good backfired, but you know he 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 started to do things that were not uh, strictly uh, good things in order to uh, you know get revenge or or to you know right a wrong or something like that. And so slowly, I kind of you know showed him uh, that that the dark side that's in him is maybe you know a little bit greater than it appeared to be at first. Nice. So it was a very, um, um, I'm not, I can't think of the right word, tortured soul, because of all this. Right. Yeah, I mean, I wanted him to be tortured, but, you know, slowly, I guess I'm I'm torturing him a little bit less and, and having him <laughs> torture other people a little bit more, I think, you know. Um, he, he's, it's like he's, he's had enough, you know, and and, you know, people close to him keep saying you know just get with it and um you know i i, I think at the time too when the vampires were so big you know it's it was uh very i think it was uh kind of chic to have the vampire always you know you know oh woe is me i hate being a vampire and so some of that yeah. snuck in there you know some of that snuck in there because the thing is i thought you know, my feeling has always been, if, if you're going to take this seriously, let's try to be logical. And I always thought, you know, the vampire is not giving up a whole lot. He's giving up some stuff, but he's not giving up right. that much. But a werewolf, you know, a werewolf's life would be pretty, pretty dismal, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. losing control, eating people he likes, stuff like that. So how, you does, know. That, how does that happen with him? How does he lose control? Well, I think in, in, in the early days, he just didn't know how to control. And so, you know, he, you know, he would just, like a vampire who wants to tap that vein, he would just, you know, the hunger would, would you know, I mean, that that's how he killed, uh, if you read the first book, you know, he killed his, his first, the big love of his life. 
and he killed her, in, you know, because he was changing, he was trying. She was helping him try to figure out how to, uh, you know, how yeah. to live as a as a werewolf, and he lost control one night, and, and so he killed her, and so he's been carrying that guilt. But then, you know, after a while, I decided that he couldn't keep, <laughs> he couldn't keep carrying that guilt forever. So, but, you know, but, you know, he's still, he is a tortured soul in that way. But I've, I, you know, when, I think when he finally learned that he didn't have to just uh, turn into a werewolf when the moon was full, that he never knew in the early days, he never knew that he could change at will. And so when I brought in other werewolves in book two, he learned that, that he had that capability. So... Very interesting. Um, if you're just joining us, we're talking with acclaimed horror novelist W.D. Gagliani, author of the Nick Lupo Werewolf series. Uh, you can check him out at his website at www.wdgagliani.com. Um, as promised, Bill is giving away two Kindle editions or signed paperbacks from the Nick Lupo series tonight. Uh, we have a key phrase. Uh, the key phrase is, I got bit by Nick. Um, just write it on our Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live Facebook page, or you can email it to us at hauntednightslive at gmail.com. Again, the key phrase is, I got bit by Nick. And if you're one of the first two people to uh, uh, send that to us, you get your choice of a signed paperback or Kindle edition of the Nick Lupo series. Um, one thing I am interested in because uh, Tamara and I write together and it's always interesting how many other people, you know, they write, how many different ways there are to write together. You write collaboratively as well. Um, yes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? How do you guys do it? What do you write and, and how is that going? Yeah, great. Um, yes. Um, I've been writing with uh, my friend Dave Benton. Uh, for some years now, actually, and uh, it came about when uh, uh, an anthology, uh, uh, the editor of an anthology was asking for uh, music-related uh, horror stories, and uh, I'm I am a music nut, but I'm not a musician, and so I thought, uh, I, I contacted this editor, and I was like, you know, I have a friend who's a musician. If we collaborate, would you, you know, would you be okay with that, even though I'm not a musician? And he said, sure, that's fine. And Dave plays the bass, and uh, he's, he's very good. And our tastes in music are, you know, I mean, 90%. We're, we're right up into the same stuff. And uh, so we started with that one story, and it worked out so well that we said, well, we should do this again. And so we've done it again and again and again and again, you know. And um, the, the, we've sort of developed um, a pattern, I guess, um, I, I think you guys write together kind of live, and we don't normally do that. Um, yeah. We've used Google Docs uh, to do most of our collaborations, uh, at least the most recent ones, uh, but not generally at the same time because our schedules are so different. Um, yeah. it, it, it sort of depends, you know, for us. Sometimes uh, we, we usually plot the story idea together, uh, and kind of work through all of it so that we kind of know, you know, the high points, we know where it's going. And then we sort of do it musically, uh, use, uh, using music as a metaphor. Sometimes, you know, since he's the bass player, we'll have, I'll, he'll, he'll lay down the rhythm tracks, so to speak, uh, you know, and, and write the bones of the first draft. 
and then I'll come in and add, uh, you know, the keyboards and guitar uh, later, and and sort of, you know, and the strings or whatever, and kind of, uh, and then and then once we have that united, then we go over it together. So that's something that we sometimes do. Sometimes he starts with a draft. Sometimes I start with a draft, and sometimes we've done alternating sections. Uh, so, you know, he might take the first section and I go from there. And since we've plotted the story, we kind of know where it's going, although we, we don't tie ourselves to an outline or anything like that. Um, but I mean, I think generally speaking, it has worked really well for us because first of all, we get along, um, uh, you know, which I think is a great thing for a team. Uh, I've, oh, yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to people who, who can't, you know, who said they can't work with other people because they just don't get along. You know, I mean, they might be friends, but they can't get along enough uh, to work together. And, um, you know, another thing is ego. I think we both have been very good about setting ego aside. Yeah, that's vital. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it, 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 we we have to be able to look at something and say, you know, I don't think this is working, and it doesn't matter whether I wrote it or Dave wrote it. If one of us says something isn't working, it probably isn't working. Right. So we don't uh, we don't make a big deal about uh, changing each other's work. Um, uh, you know, he he has strengths, I have strengths. Uh, he has weaknesses, I have weaknesses, and we've been able to balance the two. We, you know, it's a pretty a pretty symbiotic relationship that we have. I think he's really good at some stuff that I'm not so good at, and vice versa. Um, you know, he, he always says that he writes he writes a much leaner style, and I tend to go in with that sort of 18th century mentality and add a lot more detail. <laughs> so you know, that sort of you know, he's always like, "Well, I can't believe you know you you put in the, the that many details," and I think that's just because I've always been kind of a researcher, and so you know. Uh, you know, my guys aren't going to hold up a gun. They're going to hold up, you know, an you know, an 1864 peacemaker or whatever, right. you know. <laughs> and so, and so, I mean, I think that kind of works for our to our advantage. And uh, yeah, except we we have each other's fingers all over the work so much that we honestly rarely know who began writing what because it's so together. Yeah. Right, and I think, you know, we haven't done that um, quite to that extent, but yeah. it sounds fascinating that you're able to do that. It's fun and fast. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's but you have to work at the same time, right? You have to, yeah, you have right. to schedule that match. Yeah, we do work yeah. like eight or ten hours a day every day together. We're, wow. even if he's working on something solo while I'm working on Grandma's Rack, we're together. And we can ask each other questions and stuff, and it keeps us both honest. We don't stop working if we have each other on the yeah. line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow! It's never, yeah, it never really occurred to me to do it any other way. But it's interesting how many different ways there are to do it. There, you know, everybody has their own method. Interesting. Yeah, and I yeah. think you know our mes- our message just developed. It's not so much we didn't really plan it as such. Yeah. And and like I said, because because we don't we alternate taking the lead. Um, so, you know, it's not like we have to do it the same way every time. Right. And I, I think that keeps it fresh maybe a little bit, you know, it allows us to, to go into every story and to have it be a little different from the last time. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. You said that you, uh, listen to, that you love music. Um, do you listen to music while you write? 
Actually, I do. Um, I've gone through periods where I didn't. Um, I'm now in a period where I do. Um, <laughs> you know, it sort, it sort of depends. I think for a while there, I thought that it was distracting, even though I still love the music. I would listen to it too much. And so I've, I kind of narrowed down. I, I, I found that I can't work if the music is really intensely uh, lyrical, uh, you know, if, uh, like, for instance, I'm a big fan of various bands, but like, yes, and Genesis, old time progressive yeah. rock. And if I listen to those, I find that I just go off and start listening and I can't really work. So yeah. I do need, I do need something to be a little bit more of a background. Um, so I, I listen to a lot of Tangerine Dream and other electronic music and or uh, movie soundtracks, but they have to be movies that I'm really in love with. Um, I don't usually pick up a soundtrack just because it's a soundtrack. And then I don't want a soundtrack that has songs on it, um, uh, maybe one song, but I mean, I don't want a soundtrack that's made up of songs. I want a soundtrack that is all, um, you know, musical, incidental music. Uh, composed music, and, uh, and then I can go. Uh, the last book I, I that I wrote, I probably seventy percent of the time I, I listened to maybe two two soundtracks over and over and over again, and for some reason that that seemed to work for me. Yeah, I like right. soundtracks. I can't listen to music that has words if I like the words because they will suddenly be in the in the you know manuscript. I will use oh. <laughs> television as background. I don't hear a thing. You, and, you start uh, transcribing the words. <laughs> yeah, and I funny. get contact if it's something like a requiem mass or something. I put on something with no words that I understand. I will start conducting, and it just I can hardly ever listen to music and write. But I'll put on something like oh tombstone or full metal jacket as background, and I know the movie so well. I pay no attention that they have great soundtracks, huh. especially the metal jacket, and. Uh, I use that, and I only look up at a couple of minutes. You know, when I hear the word reach around, I look up, and when I hear and help, <laughs> I look up, and that's it, you know. <laughs> wow, that, see, see, that's very interesting that you can do that. I found that I can't, if if I put on the movie, I'm, you know, my eyes will just be drawn to it constantly, which is one of the reasons I tend not to write at home. Uh, I, I tend to ah. write at a Starbucks. Uh, where I can eventually tune everybody out. Maybe not immediately, but after a while, I can tune everybody out. Um, but if I put on a movie or a TV show, I I, I, I find that my attention is drawn back to it all the time. I'm the opposite. If I, even if I'm not writing, if I'm not writing, I've got crossword puzzles or something in my hands because I can't sit still at any, you know, 280D. I have to be doing something. I'll watch a whole show, look up in the last five minutes and find out the characters don't look anything like I thought they did. I never look at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different stroke, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. So well, you don't you don't write at home like ever? Oh, I shouldn't say never. No, I mean um, it's, it's just I found that um, I'm. Uh, how can I put this? I have a I have a very cluttered workspace because it's it's my basement. I'm sitting in it right now and I have a, a lot of bookcases with books and that are in really good shape and you know on the bookshelves, but I also have a lot of stuff that's all over the floor that I you know I feel like I have to catalog or or, or you know sort through or whatever. So I always feel like there's something else I should be doing. It's like the you know it's like the writer that can't get to work until they've sharpened every pencil. 
Well, in my wow. case, it's like it's like there's all this stuff I need to do, you know. And so <laughs> by going somewhere else, I remove that, uh, you know, to some extent. And um, and I'm also not a person who can sit down and immediately start writing. Uh, it takes me a good hour, hour and a half in the session to sort of really get going. Even so I, I that long, yeah. There's like a warm up time. I agree. It's it's you can't really just sit down and be creative, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and I, and you know the thing is that the advice always is sit down and start writing. But I find that it you know I check email, I maybe check Facebook, uh, I maybe you know click on Wikipedia and read something that's related to what I'm writing. You know, it, it, I I do things that are you know, tangentially related to writing, but they're not actually writing. Uh, and then I also, you know, want to go back and read a little bit of where I was at before I start going. So it usually takes me a while to get going. And, uh, you know, if I'm at home, it, I'm overstimulated. You know, I can I can put on movies. I can stream. I can listen to music. Uh, you know, it, 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 I can really go crazy. So. Oh, that's Wow. Yeah, that's why I like writing with Alistair. He keeps me uh, from doing that. We have to <laughs> I try. What are you typing? <laughs> I, I don't oh, know. I, I, I'm kind of losing you. <laughs> Me or Alistair? Yeah, no, uh, Tamara, sorry. I uh, didn't catch what you said. I don't remember what I said. Oh. You know how long my memory is. Yeah, I'm not going to say. Alistair, ask that, that question about research that you thought of. What's that? Oh, well, we, we have a question that we just wrote down we wanted to ask you when you were mentioning researching, like going on Wikipedia. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, okay. Um, what comes first, the research or the thought? And how much how much idea do you have before you start researching it? Or does the research set off a thought or both? Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's a good question. Um, I think the plot comes first. Um, I, You know, I, I have... I have a, a a pretty good idea, at least we're, if we're talking about my own novels now and not the collaborative work. I have yeah. a pretty good idea. I have to uh, outline the basic aspects of the plot uh, pretty much all the way through, and then uh, any research that I need to do, I do, uh, you know, while I'm I'm uh, I'm actually engaged in writing it. I I I, I had a, I have a steampunk novel that I've probably started 20 years ago that I've never finished because I spent so much time doing research, you know, and uh, I just never got that much writing in, you know, I, I have, I have piles of printed uh, paper, uh, you know, uh, of, you know, encyclopedia entries from long before Wikipedia ex- uh, even existed. And, yeah. uh, and I, you know, I, I probably have more printed in research than I ever actually wrote. So I find that I can't I, if if I get stuck in the rut of uh, researching uh, way too much, I just won't get any work done. I try to I try to do the research as I go along and uh, look for things as I need them. I also have a pretty good memory, so you know w- once I've looked up um, you know a, a bunch of details about uh, uh, you know the 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 German uh, SS or the Gestapo or whatever, I generally tend to hold on to it so I don't have to go back as much. Interesting. Now, if you've just joined us, we have been talking to the acclaimed horror author W.D. Gagliani. Um, He is the author of the Nick Lupo Werewolf series. 
you can check him out at his website um, at uh, wdgagliani.com. Um, Bill is doing a giveaway tonight to uh, two lucky people who it will be their choice of uh, two Kindle editions or two signed paperbacks from the Nick Lupo series. Um, just go to our Facebook page, the Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live Facebook page, or email us uh, the key phrase, which is, I got bit by Nick. Uh, our email is hauntednightslive at gmail.com. Um, in closing, one thing I would like to ask, uh, Bill, is is there anything about your character, Nick Lupo, that you think readers would be interested to know about him that they probably don't? Uh, well, I mentioned that he's that he is probably based on me to some extent, although I think probably all of our characters are based on us in some way. Um, something that he, that they might be interested to know that they don't. That's a good question. Wow. Uh, I didn't expect that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think uh, probably I would have to say um, his his family history, besides you know his own childhood being kind of mine. His family history is is my family history, and my parents grew up in Europe uh, during World War II. And so I found myself going in that direction. And so the basis for a lot of the the plots from book two on um, has been uh, related really more to me than to him. So I guess that would be one thing people might not realize that, you know, I'm writing stuff about World War II and they're probably wondering why or where that came from. And that's the reason is because I grew up hearing stories about my parents um, who were bombed by, uh, by the allies and, uh, you know, occupied by the Germans and then liberated and uh, saw fighting in the streets. And so they had quite a colorful childhood and I, um, I, I kind of adopted it for myself. And uh, so, you know, Nick, Nick's background, besides his own, you know, uh, character being me, his background is really mine as well. Nice. Very interesting. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, let's do it again. Um, I'd love to do it again. Um, the next book, I'm, um, I'm working on it. The last one came out in March of uh, this year. The next one is due out, um, I'm still working on it. It's due out late 2015. Okay, let us know as soon as you know, and we'll book you. Excellent. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah. Uh, it was nice meeting you. Nice meeting uh-huh. you, too. It's been All a right. lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Right, Have, a well. Have a good Bye. night. Have a good night. Bye-bye. That was Bill Gagliani, author of the Nick Lupo Werewolf series. Uh, And this is Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. This is the last show before the holidays. We'll be returning in 2015 with more horror talk with the biggest names in the business. We wish you a free... Oh. What's that? We'll have our... Don't forget, not talking over each other is one of our resolutions. (laughs) We're going to have our New Year's resolution list on the floor. Yes, yes, we, we do. We have a New Year's resolution list coming up. It'll be great. All right. Um, so uh, we wish you a freaky season and a terrific new year. And um, speaking of the holidays, be sure to check out our newly released novella, Christmas Spirits, available now on Amazon. 
Uh, Christmas Spirits can be read as a standalone or as the fourth installment of our ongoing serial thriller. I love saying that. Serial thriller. The Ghost of Ravencrest. So, that being said, until next year, may you have very haunted nights. And sweet screams. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Get to Old Navy, two days only, tomorrow and Sunday. Get a full 50% off all Old Navy active for the family. Shorts, tees, leggings, all Old Navy active is 50% off at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 825 to 826 excludes in-store clearance.